You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, when you send an email to the church and you say, hey, bring your Bibles because we're going to talk about Revelation, <laughs> you set yourself up for a lot of expectation. Um, hey, John, would you come and grab this and... Um, could you, I hate to ask, maybe have somebody, I didn't make copies between gatherings. I have a handout for you that we'll make available to you after the service. It's a front and back handout that I want to be able to give you so you can take it with you. Because we're going to move kind of fast. But let me say this to you before we do. When you're a pastor, or when you're someone who's going to stand up before the people of God on every Sunday you're always thinking of, of, you're thinking of one of three things, one of three approaches as to what's going to be the heart of this moment. And they're all grounded in love. And they're all grounded, hopefully, in a commitment to be faithful myself. But there's three, three postures that I have to consider every Sunday. Do I come today as a pastor, as like a shepherd, going to offer a word that tries to say, hey, don't eat from that grass because that grass will hurt you. Don't fall into that ditch. That ditch will hurt you. Do I come as a shepherd who tries to guide us into the faithfulness that we have proclaimed and do so with a kind of gentleness and a nurture? And that's always, that's, that's good. But then there's another posture that you have to consider. Do I come today as a prophet? posture of a prophet where you're going to tell the truth in a way that becomes subversive, in a way that's going to be poignant, in a way that's going to give way for all candor, in a way that might even be so poignant and candid that it speaks directly to every belief and ethic we hold and every political persuasion we embrace. And then there's this third posture. And this third posture is, do I come then instead Today as a teacher, as one who's not going to be so concerned with the rhetoric and the art and the form, as one who's not going to be as concerned with the time, at least on the clock, but who's going to be more concerned with the times that we find ourselves in and want to offer a word that helps us think when we leave this place. Today I want if you'll allow me to be a teacher. And so if you have your Bibles, you're going to need them. If you don't, you can do your version. Uh, somebody asked me first gathering, you know, why did I specifically want people to bring a Bible? Because you might want to underline things. You might not, I don't know. You know, you do you. When it comes to the Bible there. Well, not, that, that could be taken the wrong way. Don't, don't do what you want to do when it comes to the Bible. You know what I mean. Um, so, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Here we are. I want to read this together. Let's read it with one voice. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You don't have to read the other part. In Greek, in Greek, the word Almighty translates pentocrator. Everybody say pentocrator. Now, that word sounds weird and may seem... Kind of a pointless word to say or to use. But that word's going to matter. That word's going to matter to us um, because that word is thick with meaning and purpose. 
So here's going to be the hard part that's going to feel like sloshing through mud. I've got to set up revelation a little bit. So first and foremost, it's revelation, not revelations. You with me? In other words, it's not multiple revelations. It's one revelation. So let's just start there, right? Because sometimes we're like, turn to revelations. Revelation. Now, the word revelation has an actual, like it's a word, right? And it literally, it literally is the word apocalypsis. That's what the word revelation is. So if we were all Greek, in our Bibles it would say apocalypsis. You know what that word means? It's apocalypse. And the word apocalypse, which we translate revelation, doesn't mean crazy, scary, end-time war. It literally means unveiling. That's all it means. It means unveiling. It's pulling back the curtain. And specifically, Revelation is an unveiling, and it's also a prophecy, meaning it's truth-telling that points to present, to present, and to future, right? So it's an unveiling of the present that also points to what's happening in the present with an eye toward the future. Are you with me? Come on now, you got to stay with me today. Because I think this could be a word. It's pointing to present and future realities. And it's written for us, like literally written within a letter format. Which suggests then that this particular letter called Revelation as apocalyptic literature, it's literature, it is literature. Y'all, God is smart, right? Like, like God writes to us in literary devices. He writes to us in forms and functions. This is, by definition, not just the Word of God. It is a form of literature called apocalyptic literature, which with it will come cryptic language, figurative language, poetic language, emotional language, controversial language, and pictorial language, meaning that the language of the text is trying to spark our imaginations to see something we haven't always seen. Are you with me? And this particular letter we have to remember, was written to a particular people. And these particular people were seven churches in what we would now call Western Turkey. And these seven churches were living at a time when Emperor Nero was killing Christians out of madness and lunacy for sport. He would take their heads off, he would dip it in tar, he would stick it on a pole, he would light it up and that would light the way. So the Christians who are about to hear this letter from who I believe to be John the Revelator are hearing this letter from a seat of fear, of persecution, of anxiety, of worry, of war, of violence, of a maniacal mad emperor and nobody on their side in the fear of persecution. Their loved ones have died. They're coming to church trying to figure out, do we hold to our allegiance to Jesus or do we just go ahead and give in to Nero so we can live? That's the context. They're not sitting here going, ooh, what's going to happen when the world ends? Kirk Cameron doesn't show up, you know what I'm saying? Like, anybody? No, only some of y'all get that vote. I got you, Jeffrey. I appreciate you laughing. They're wondering what's happening. And they're wondering who they need to be. So apocalypse is this term that's used to identify a kind of writing, y'all. And it was quite common among Jews and Christians for several centuries before and after Christ. It's examples of like apocalyptic literature in your Bible. 
would not only just be Revelation, other examples would be Daniel chapter 7 through 12, an example of apocalyptic literature would be Mark 13, or Matthew 25, or Luke 21. And here's the thing about apocalyptic literature, and this is important. Apocalyptic literature would choose the, the poetry, the emotional, po the emotional language, the provocative language, the, the, the pictorial language. It would choose these kind of ways of speaking because it was ultimately trying to do two things to the reader, to inspire hope and inspire resistance. Are you with me? It was trying to call people to hope while at the same time calling people to resist. Resist giving into what is happening around you, specifically, contextually. Resist giving into the empire and the empire's demands and hold on to the hope of the king of kings and the kingdom that is and is to come. Are you with me? So hope and resistance is the tension that Revelation is speaking to. Especially in times of evil, crisis, and oppression. Revealing truth about these unseen present realities, which is why there's mentionings of heaven and hell and unknown future realities like judgment and salvation and makes use of all the symbolism, cryptic and figurative language. And it's just true, y'all. Revelation is a mysterious and slippery text. But it does have a powerful purpose. And the powerful purpose of Revelation comes from remembering its context. From the standpoint of biblical scholarship, I do believe that it was John who was exiled on Patmos who wrote this. I'm not smart enough to know all the ins and outs of that. But that's the one that makes the most sense to me. And if I want to be intentional with this text, and we always want to be intentional with the Scriptures, take note of this, if you will. 278 of the 404 verses of Revelation contain references to the Old Testament. You with me? I want to say that again. 278 of the 404 verses of Revelation contain references to the Old Testament, which means we always have to know our story. And it references uh, books like Psalms and Daniel, Zechariah, Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. And ultimately, ultimately I would suggest that Revelation is about simply King Jesus. That Jesus is the King and is the faithful witness who remained true to God despite the persecution and suffering. I think that's the point of Revelation. That ultimately, the Revelation is trying to say, Jesus is king, and he's a faithful witness. And even with the violence and the suffering and the persecution and the ridicule, as one who was, it was in his own world that was occupied by a foreign government, the same foreign government that occupies you readers, he says, he was faithful. But then with that is a summons. Everybody say summons. There's a so what. That's the summons. Summons is a so what to that. So what? Well, so what? So you can be faithful too and you should. You be faithful to the king despite the persecution and suffering because you can, because Jesus was. And Jesus is faithful to you. Jesus is Christ the king, the lamb that was slain, who now reigns with God. Worship Him alone. To be intentional, beloved, this is a political text. Are you with me? It's a political text. Why do I say it's a political text? Well, keep in context. Jesus is what? King. Matter of fact, the word king 
and kingdom and rule is used 37 times in this, ver in this book alone. In addition to that, the word throne is used 44 times. In addition to that, power and authority is used about 40 times. Power, authority, throne, king, kingdom, ruler, that's a politic. Because there's Nero who says he's God. There's Nero who says he's the divine chosen one. There's Rome which says it is the kingdom on earth. And there are the Christians whose lives are being threatened if they don't pledge allegiance to that commitment. Are you with me? That's the context of Revelation. So whatever you taught, whatever you were learning and all the other books you may have read, this is, this is actually the just object, like this is just the context. And I think it has an impact while we read it. So, are you ready? All right, here's some, here's some, here's some verses, and it gets big. And if first gathering is any indication, I'm liable to jump out of my skin. Because these verses are extraordinary and awe-inspiring. Now, one thing i got to remind you of, I'm pulling all kinds of verses out of context because we're just reading them in sections. I'm not teaching them out of context, I don't think, but I am reading them out of context. So I'm giving you the handout so you can look at the verses yourself and you have it in a new version as well. But what I'm begging you to do, please, 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 times 10, because I ain't too proud to beg, what I'm begging you to do is to not start getting lost in the verse that I just read. Because when it starts talking about gems and sapphires and rivers of this and angels with a, like freaky eyes inside, like, I don't want you to start reading like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's right. And then like we're six verses ahead of you. Like stay with me, please. Are you with me? Can we do that? Because it matters. It matters. I think it matters. All right, so here we go. <clears throat> Revelation 4, verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and each was covered all around and on the inside with eyes. See what I was saying? Yep. They never rest day or night, but keep on saying, say this with me, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is coming. The Greek word Almighty, per, Greek word Almighty, Pentocrator. Just hold on to that. You're going to see Almighty in every verse we, in every section of verses we read. Revelation 11, verse 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Now I want to say that, the kingdom of the what? Of the world. The kingdom of the world. The world doesn't just turn and burn, y'all. The kingdom of the world. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He will rule forever and always. Then the 24 elders who were sitting on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. And they said, read it with me, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was. For you have taken your great power and enforced your rule. The nations were enraged. I want to say that again. The nations were enraged. I want to say that one more time. The kingdom has come to the world and the nations are enraged. Russia, the USA, China, Europe. The nations are enraged. But your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged. The time came to reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, 
and to destroy those who destroy the earth. To destroy those who destroy the earth. God isn't destroying the earth. The nations are destroying the earth. Come on. Come on. Revelation 15.3 They sing the song of Moses, God's servant, and the song of the Lamb. Everybody say Lamb. The Lamb, not the Lion, the Lamb. I want you to notice the theme of the Lamb. The Lamb, the most gentle expression of the peaceful, powerful Christ, the Lamb. They sing the song of Moses, God's servant, and the song of the Lamb, saying, sing it with me, Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Just, justice, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Revelation 16, 6 through 7 and 14. Then I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, Holy One, who is and was, because you have given these judgments. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God Almighty, your judgments are true and just. Y'all, can you see the hunger for truth and justice in this text? Think about the context. The church is living under the oppressive reign of an unjust powerful man in a powerful empire and they're longing for truth and justice they're longing not just for salvation so they go to heaven when they die they're longing for liberation they're longing for a king now verse 14 I want to stay with this these are demonic spirits that do signs they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty I want to read that again I want you to see that Demonic spirits that do signs. The demonic spirits go out to the kings of the whole world to do battle against God. God isn't starting the battle. The kings are starting the battle. The nations are starting the battle. And who's behind that? The demonic spirits. The demonic spirits reach into the nations and the nations are the ones who want to wage war against God. You see that? Come on now, that preaches. What starts these wars, what starts these battles is the demonic spirits in the nations. And at some point in the story of the God of heaven and earth, it comes to a climax where they have the audacity to want to take on King Jesus. Revelation 19, verse 6 through 8. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised His royal power, royal political kingdom, royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give Him the glory for the wedding day of the Lamb. Not the Lamb, the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's the church. She has given fine, pure, white linen to wear. Listen, for the fine linen is the saints' acts of justice. Do you see that? Fred, why are you always talking about justice? Because that's our linen, y'all. That's the dress of the bride of Christ. The dress of the bride of Christ are our acts of justice. Not our good morality and good works and songs we sing. It's our acts of justice. Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth, talking about Jesus now. From his mouth. 
comes a sharp sword that he will use to strike down the nations. He is the one who will rule them with an iron rod, and he is the one who will trample the winepress of the Almighty God's passionate anger. He has, name, he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. Notice it doesn't say personal Lord and Savior. It's King of kings, y'all. Lord of lords. That's the story. And then, of course, like the section of text that we like the most, Revelation 21. Verse 1 through 11, 20 through 27. That's why I'm going to read a lot of it. So then John, so now I want you to keep in mind that this is present tense for John. John says, then, then, right now in my moment, in my body, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Everybody say, coming down. See, we don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. The new heavens and new earth come together. You with me? That right there is a theological flip of the script. Matter of fact, if you read Revelation, it's constant. Heaven comes down, comes down, comes down to us in the earth, and the heavens come one place when Jesus returns. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. As God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now I want you to imagine these Christians in these seven churches in Western Tur modern day Western Turkey living under the reign of Nero hearing all of this. I want you to hear them hear the words that He will wipe away those tears from your eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne says, Look, I'm making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. All is done. He, so, so John says, Then that Lord looks at me and says, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. Do you see that? Those who emerge victorious. What's the victorious? Just remain faithful. Remain faithful and true. Remain faithful and true. Those who are victorious will be my sons and daughters. Notice he doesn't say they'll be my worshipers. Notice he doesn't say they'll be my servants. You and I were made for worship. No, we weren't. We were made to be sons and daughters who worship. We were made to be the beloved children of God forever. To be sons and daughters of God. That's who we're made to be. But then verse 8 is a text that I do not take any delight in, but it has to strike awe in our souls. But for the cowardly, for the cowardly, the faithless, or another word would be the disloyal, the vile, the murderers, those who commit sexual immoralities, those who do drugs, cast spells, the idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and, suffer, and, and sulfur. This is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke with me. Come, he said. 
I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He took me in a spirit-inspired trance to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. You ready? Coming down out of heaven from God. The city had God's glory. Dot, 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 dot. Because there's a lot more to it. Verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city. You know, because that's all John the Revelator would know. Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty, is Christ the Pentecost, and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Paul's the nations. You know what that means, y'all? There will be ethnicities in the new heavens and new earth. There will be skin color in the new heavens and new earth because there will be nations in the new heavens and new earth. We don't all just all of a sudden become monolithic and all look the same because we're in glory. The new heavens and new earth come together and there will be peoples. Peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beauty of God's world. And all of our extraordinary embodied beauty made perfect in the presence of the Christ who is the Pentecostal. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Do you see that? That's what I'm saying. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. They will bring their bodies and their stories and their... Bring it into it. The beauty of it. Nothing unclean will ever enter in. Nor anyone who does what is vile and deceitful. But only those who are registered in the Lamb's scroll of life. Whew! That's a lot. I feel like we need to do some Zumba. Stretch it out. Shake it off. Jesus is Lord and King. And you see the word almighty. You saw that word in every text we read. And it's that Greek word that I was trying to say. It, it's pentakrit. It, it means ruler of all. It means all powerful. That's its Greek origins. And so here's what we got to remember. So just one more little point that we got to know. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek as what was called the Septuagint, the word pentakrit replaced the Hebrew language for Yahweh Sabaoth, which is Lord of hosts and El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. So the Greek word that captures the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, and the Greek word that captures the all-encompassing, all-powerful, all-present God Almighty is the one word, Pentecost. It's used one time in Paul's letters and nine times in the book of Revelation, and we just read all of them. And this word, Pentecost, y'all, it's rich in meaning because it points to King Jesus' pre-existent Deity and His post-ascension Lordship. And here's what I'm trying to say. In the ancient church, y'all, in the ancient church, this word, this idea that Christ is Lord, that Christ is Pentecostal of all the earth and rules with a political rule that is bringing in a new government on the earth, a government called the kingdom of God, that was the dominant narrative of the church. Now the problem with that 
is in Western missionary movements, this idea that Christ is Lord of all and rules with a political rule was taken to this unhealthy and ungodly extreme where missionaries taught some unknowingly because they just handed down to them what was they handed down to others what was handed down to them that this Christ is Pentocrator is bringing in a new government that is an earthly type of government seeking to destroy native cultures, practices, and religious sensibilities to bring about a kind of cultural uniformity that looked more like the West. That happened. Matter of fact, that's what led the way to Christian imperialism, that led the way to colonialism that was grounded in a belief of a superiority of European bodies who were Christians. And all other bodies and faiths were brought into subjection to that belief. This idea of Christ as Pentocrator is what led, when it, was, when it was not checked theologically, it's what led the European church to colonize Asia, Africa, and the Americas. And lost its way. Which is why it may be somewhat new to some of us because there's this hesitancy to try and get back to that language. But I submit to you today that if this language is held in the tension of who Jesus is, we do a better job holding the beauty of Pentocrator above us. Because Jesus is both the righteous judge and the lover of mankind at the same time. See, where the Western missionary movements might have been wrong, stay with me, I'm saying might have been wrong, is that they forgot that the same Jesus who is Christ the Pentocrator was a disinherited Jewish man of brown skin living in the occupation of a Roman government born to a poor family. They forgot that Jesus, although he was all-powerful, became weak. Even though he was rich, became poor. Even though he was the God of heaven and earth, became vulnerable to the violence of the world to overcome it because he is Christ Pentecost. See, that's the tension. See, God's able to live in the tension of these things. We struggle. In the Christian tradition, before Christ as Pentecostal was taken to an extreme for the advancement of earthly political agendas, it was understood that the good news of God's kingdom welcoming us all into His life both judges and blesses us. And it is by the gospel that humanity is liberated and rescued. And it is by the gospel humanity is judged. And that comes to John 3. You know, but the verse is after 16. But let's start in 16. For God so loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son that so everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Stay with me. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe in Him is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. God is coming because God loves but when Jesus shows up, now a choice has to be made. And it's that choice that condemns us. Or it's that choice that leads us to our liberation. See, look at the rest of the verse. This is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. 
Here's what the early church knew that we can recapture, and I think maybe even more than any time in my lifetime, we may should recapture now. Is that this God who is with us, this God who is the God that we read of in Revelation, this all-powerful, all-encompassing God is as close to you as the breath in your lungs. That is why the word for spirit in both the New and the Old Testament translates breath. This magnificent, extraordinary God who is going to bring all things together, who is going to restore all things, who is going to make all the wrong things right, is as close to you as the breath in your lungs. And when we say, God, where are you? God says, I'm with you. Where are you? When we say, God, what are you going to do? God says, I'm with you. What are you going to do? Amen. That is Christ's Pentocrator. The all-powerful, all-encompassing, ever-present Christ the King who was, who is, and who is to come. He's as close to you as the breath in your lungs. Paul, thinking about this final coming of Christ, remembers this Christ who's going to mend all things, who's going to bring about the restoration of all things, this all-powerful, righteous judge and lover of all people. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected everything to Him. Read this with me. So that God may be all in all. In the restoration of all things, beloved, there won't be one step of ground in which we walk that won't be filled with the fullness of God. That's why John's like, there's no need for a son. Yo, we have the son. There's no need for places to worship in temples. We have the living temple. So Paul, though, gets to a point in his life where he's not just thinking forward. He says, what about now? Well, I guess he says, I got a verse for that. Colossians 3, verse 11. In Christ, right now, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Don't get lost in that. Catch this. But Christ is all and in all. That is is Christ the Pentocrator. So here's where it is, beloved, and I'm going to bring it to an end. In the reality, it's the reality, it is the reality, it is the reality of our faith that we all just read, it is the reality of our faith that when God's people are faithful and attentive, everybody say faithful and attentive. Come on, when God's people are faithful and attentive to God's presence, and hold on to the belief, just like holding on, even if it's by the, like the, like the like nails, just holding on to the belief. If God's people are faithful and attentive to God's presence and hold on to the belief that Christ is, is at work in the restoration of all things, transformation is possible. 
But if God's people lose attention and turn it toward other empires, if God's people lose reality, sight of the presence of God at work, if God's people just let go and lose that belief of, of Christ at work in the restoration of all things, then transformation isn't possible. But the fact of the matter is, a mad, cynical world becomes filled with new possibilities when the people of God are committed to faithfulness. And the belief that the all-powerful, all-encompassing, ever-present Christ is as close to us as the breath in our lungs and is the Pentocrator who was, who is, and who is to come. See, wrongs can be set right. Because all wrongs will be set right in Christ Pentocrator, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Peace, the shalom of God, human flourishing for all, is possible even now because the fullness of shalom awaits in Christ Pentocrator, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Liberation, beloved. Liberation is possible because the fullness of liberation is our eternal reality in Christ, the Pentocrator, who was, who is, and who is to come. Joy is possible, beloved, even now and even as we give room for seasons of lament. We don't have to choose between the two. We can let them come as they are because joy is always going to be possible because joy will become all we know in Christ, Pentocrator, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And so there is a question for each of us. Do we see the new possibilities open to us and the promises of our faith secured for us by this all-powerful, all-encompassing, ever-present Christ the King who will restore all things. We just read the promises of our faith. Are we open to the new possibilities that those promises create now for us? See, in moments of desperate need, when bombs are falling from skies half a world away, or when a barrage of attacks on our heart and mind come our way, can we see the new possibilities open to us and the promises of our faith secured for us by the all-powerful, all-encompassing, ever-present Christ Pentocrator, the one who is, who was, and who is to come? Do we cry out to God in prayer? Do we lay out our lament or our anger or our rage? Do we look to the Holy Scriptures for help and endurance in our times of need? Do we lean in? Do we lean into the companionship of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be reminded of these new possibilities and the promises of our faith? Do we show up on Sunday, every Sunday, and receive the Eucharist that reminds us of the nail-scarred hands and blood-stained brow of Jesus who loves us with a love that will never let go? Or do we allow the madness of this world filled with lies from pundits and power-hungry people to overtake our hearts with cynicism and fill our minds with the false hope of false promises we know do not work? What Christ Pentocrator teaches us is that since Christ is the all-powerful, all-encompassing, ever-present, 
God who is, who was, and who is to come, He is always moving. Always working. Always loving. Always longing to invite us to surrender our hearts and minds, our loyalties and lives to the promises of Christ who is King and will restore all things because He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And beloved, even if the worst thing this mad world could bring meets us, Christ will be there with us, holding securely in His hands the keys to life and death. And He will say to us what He said to John the Revelator in chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give freely water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God. And they, you, will be my sons and daughters. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.